0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For um, everyone else, I invite you to turn with me, if you have a copy of God's Word, in hand to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which is the section that we're looking at this Sunday and uh, next Sunday for sure. And I just want to read this chapter, it's short, it's only 13 verses, um, and the content of those verses is relatively short uh instead it before us in, uh, again, 1 Corinthians 8, and we're looking, we'll just look at the opening verses this morning, but I just want to read the whole section because it forms kind of a complete thought. Paul says this now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the, things, uh, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. But for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him." However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But God will not. Com- but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours is not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining at an idol's temple... Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble." Now, as we come to chapter 8 this morning, we're arriving at a new topic, and uh, and this is a new section in the correspondence Paul is having with this church. There are certain textual signposts that he actually gives us as we get into the back half of the letter, starting in chapter 7, and uh, that help us understand and, and alert us to the fact that we're driving through a new town, so to speak, and uh, that Paul has centered himself on a new topic. He He did this in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, now... Um, concerning the things which you wrote, and he talks about, you know, all the things with marriage. And then in chapter, um, verse 25 of chapter 7, he says the same thing, now concerning virgins, those who are unmarried, and then here in chapter 8, verse 1, and then in chapter 12, verse 1, he now says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And again, later on in chapter 16, verse 1, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, so um, all along the way, Paul is um, laying out various um, textual signposts that alert us to the fact that he's moving. The Corinthians had written him with all these questions, and Paul is now carried along by the Holy Spirit to, to write back and to fill in those gaps, help them understand uh, how to respond to those things. Can we ask you to shut that door, please? Thank you. Um, and uh, so... Beginning here in chapter 8, and, and really continues all the way down through chapter 10, uh, Paul is taking up this whole issue of meat offered to idols. Now, when we look at that from our present context, um, you might be wondering, well, why does this take up two chapters? It's almost a sixth of the whole letter. So why is he talking about this in such detail? Because for us, just a casual reading of the text would uh, make it seem like this is a no-brainer. Um, as Christians, we should have nothing to do with idolatry. Why Why is this even an issue for them? But if that is our kind of cursory response to reading this, we, it, we've kind of tipped our hand that we're not reading the text uh, in its context, but what we're actually doing is reading it through our the lens of our kind of modern um, setting, our modern circumstances. And when we approach the text in that way from a modern viewpoint, not only do we miss the important truths that are that are there, that are lying on the ground that Paul's trying to teach us, but even what we what we do pick up, we are prone to misinterpret. So it's important when you read and study the Bible uh, that you do your best using, you know, good resources, trustworthy Bible study resources uh, to help you understand the occasion and the context in which these things are written so that we can firmly grasp all that God has for us, and then also rightly Figure out the implications of those things for our lives. And um, when you look at the historical context of this letter and first century Corinth, you know, this is a Roman city that is neck deep in idol worship. This is the the context in which these folks are living. We can, when we understand that, we can begin to appreciate why it might have been a challenge for them to, um, to navigate this whole issue of food sacrificed. To idols. The situation they were found themselves in was complicated by a number of things. Well, two really. I'll highlight two. First, it was common social practice in that day to have meals in or around a temple or in some place associated with an idol. That was kind of like an ancient restaurant in those days. And so um, the times when people gathered together socially publicly or even privately to celebrate unique things in their lives were oftentimes when a sacrifice would have been offered to a pagan deity, which would occasion them being in, uh, in and around that. Public festivals, private special occasions were all times when, when unbelievers would offer up sacrifices to their various gods. And part of that, that um, celebration and that sacrifice was a, sacri- was a shared meal together. So, so, to cut yourself off from that is to um, as a Christian would have been to cut yourself off from most social interaction with your unbelieving family friends and and neighbors so and on top of that, if you were on kind of the lower end of society, you didn 't eat a lot of meat in general, um, and you lived on grains and vegetables, so meat was kind of a luxury that was rarely accessible. To anyone unless there were kind of an excess of it around these different feasts and gatherings um, that were connected with idol worship. So you can see why they'd be very hesitant to let go of that. If I said you could only have coffee at Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know, that would, that would be hard. That'd be a hard thing to let go of. Um, and uh, so they didn't really want to put it in the rearview mirror. The, the second thing, so apart from just the social dynamic, the second thing that complicated the whole issue of meat sold to, in the marketplaces is that uh, most of what was sold had been processed through some kind of a temple, a sacrifice. There are um, parts, uh, you know, and again, we understand a little bit of this from the Old Testament, but part of the animal was burnt up on the altar, even in a pagan context. Usually part was reserved for the priests, And then another part was shared by the offerer in some kind of fellowship meal. But that creates a lot of meat. And so when there was more than it was needed, the priest would um, sell what couldn't be used. And so the majority of the meat that was available for sale at that time had some connection with it toward idol worship. So, you know, when you and I go to the grocery store now and we go to the meat section and purchase a steak, every ounce of that meat has been raised and slaughtered and processed exclusively for commercial profit. It has absolutely no connection whatsoever to uh, you know, religious uh, um, practices of any kind. As it, but that was not the case in Paul's day. In fact, most meat was probably sold in this way. So when you understand then how pervasive idol worship was in the city, how tightly it had woven its tentacles into the kind of religious Social and and even just the commercial aspects of their culture, then we can begin to maybe appreciate a little bit better what Paul's saying here. That it wasn't just as simple as "don't do this, <laughs> stay away from these things," and um, and so and then on top of that, to complicate the matter even further, not only did the Corinthians have all those external pressures of of religious, social, cultural things weighing down on them, but internally within the church there emerged two groups, two factions, of believers who looked at this whole issue of meat offered to idols very differently from each other. And so there was one group of believers, probably mostly Gentiles, but there were probably some Jews in the mix as well, who'd come out of that idol worshiping background, or if they were Jews, they knew that, you know, they weren't to have anything to do with idol worship. And um, and having come out of they were making a clean break with their old life, their former life, and, and therefore they found that eating meat offered to idols as especially offensive and assaulted their conscience. So both Jew and Gentile understood that any contact with idolatry now as a Christian, um, as they understood it as from their former life before Christ, that would have weighed on their consciences. That would have been very difficult for them to deal with. And uh, and Paul speaks about these folks in the text so to partake of meat associated with idols that was that that laid guilt upon their conscience and for some it even may have opened the door of temptation to turn back to their former life so so they wanted nothing to do with it and at the same time so you have this one group of people that feel like they should have nothing to do with it and at the same time there is another group within the church who were saying well listen it's just meat um, didn't Jesus teach in Matthew 15, uh, verse 11, that it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, that's what defiles the man? I mean, he, 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 he declared all foods clean, so, you know, this is part of that. And what difference does it make where that meat is coming from? Um, if I want to enjoy a steak dinner at the temple of Aphrodite, I should be able to do that. Um, why shouldn't I? So what you have now, in the as Paul uh, responds to their questions, is two groups of believers in the same church who held diametrically opposed viewpoints on this whole issue of meat offered to, to an idol. And it was driving a wedge between the various members of the church. One group, we'll call them the knowledge group, believed that they had the freedom, they had the authority, they had the right to eat meat, that had been previously offered to an idol, whenever and wherever they pleased, and you had a second group. We'll call them the weak, not as a knock on them, but that's how Paul describes them in the text. Because that they have, we'll have this weak group because, and he calls them that because um, they believed meat offered to idols was wrong and and it and it assaulted their conscience. These weaker brothers and sisters were wrestling with guilt and they felt wounded by watching their. Fellow brothers and sisters go and to dine in an idol's temple, eating the meat that was served in them. So, so you have all of that pressure coming in on them externally and internally. So Paul steps in here in this text, and he offers up his counsel, first on ethical grounds in chapter 8, and then on theological grounds in chapter chapter 10. And it's sandwiched in between chapter 8 and 9, excuse me, 8 and 10 is chapter 9, which is Paul's example in which he illustrates his main point by appealing to his own conduct as both an apostle and as a leader in the church. So there really are two questions that are being answered in these three chapters. The first is how should, as a Christian, they um, deal with this issue, which is what we're taking up in chapter 8, of partaking in a feast in honor of an idol, which usually happened in or right next to a temple, a, a pagan temple. And then the second issue that he addressed at the end of chapter 10 is the more arm's length transaction of purchasing and eating meat from the marketplace that at some point in its life cycle <laughs> circled through a temple as part of a sacrifice. Uh, the, he has two different uh, um, words of counsel for, for those situations. But, um, but as we come to this text, there is more here than meets the eye. Um, because behind the specific occasion, behind the specific circumstances, um, Paul is going to impart a profound spiritual truth that we desperately need to hear as we relate to one another in the body of Christ. And what truth is it that Paul hopes to engrave on our hearts here in chapter 8? And, and really, not even in chapter 8, but 9 and 10 as well. It is this love, not simply knowledge, grounds Christian conduct. Love. Not simply knowledge grounds Christian conduct. And we're going to break this chapter down into three parts. uh, And our outline for this week and next week will be as follows. First, in verses 1 to 3, we'll see um, the church's gentle correction. And then in verses 4 to 6, the church's common confession. And lastly, verses 7 to 13, the church's mutual care. But we want to look this morning first at just these opening verses, and we see the church's gentle correction. And there's some kind of sub points I think will be made clear as we go through this, and that is we see the church's gentle correction in verses 1 to 3. Now, you might have thought that Paul was done with correction, because when we got done with chapter 6, we said he's mostly done with correction, and that's true uh, in a, in the way that he was doing that in the opening section, but now as we come to chapter eight, we'll see that there is still more that is bent that needs to be straightened, as far as Paul's concerned. And it's worth noting how Paul goes about this with them, because the issue is uh, the same as he addressed in chapters one to four, which was their pride and their selfishness. But here in chapter eight, Paul chalks up the issue more to foolish ignorance than rebellion and wickedness. And that comes through in how he responds. Um, this is an issue for Paul that seems more one of ignorance rather than hard-heartedness. And so he begins differently than he does in those opening chapters when he, he expected the church to know better. He expected them to to know more than they and to walk in what he had taught them. He moves here in chapter 8 with instruction and exhortation rather than with rebuke and wrath, which is just as a whole a wise way for us as Christians to speak the truth in love to one another. We need to understand that. I've said this before, and I think it bears repeating. You instruct ignorance with patience and kindness and gentleness. That is uh, and that should be our, our primary default um, approach to uh, instructing those who are uh, need uh, to be and uh, take the things of the Lord and apply them more, um, more practically. Only then after instructing ignorance with long-suffering and forbearance, when the person clearly understands what God has said and what God expects, and you're confident that they understand that, only then should we move more firmly and directly to confront rebellion. So, um, instruct ignorance, and then we confront rebellion. Um, That's just a good counsel, you know, uh, ministry axiom. And we always, always move in at first, assuming ignorance. Even if you think there's no way they could not know that. Well, let's just for the sake of love, assume ignorance. So we always want to try and instruct with patience and grace. And then, only then, do we want to move forward after that's been done for a season. Then do we need to bring a more forceful correction. So that's what Paul's doing here. In verses one to four, he thought they should know better because he's already taught them these things. He was there. He he says, you've seen my life, you've seen my conduct, we've already talked about this, and so he's much more forceful, but here, here he expects them to take his instruction to heart, um, and he has a lot to say on this food offered to idols, but um, he wants them to be, he is much more patient and pillowy, if you will, in these, chap- in these opening verses. And you can see that just from how he starts. Paul begins by speaking not to those whose consciences are weak, but by addressing those who he views as the strong, this knowledge group, this knowledge faction. And um, these folks who are comfortable dining in an idol's temple, eating meat sacrificed to an idol. And he says in verse 1, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. It's likely in writing to Paul and bringing this whole situation to his attention, because he wouldn't know about it. He's not there unless they had written to him and explained. So he, in, in, in addressing this whole issue, Paul, um, he, their appeal to him was likely this. Listen, we know... An idol is really nothing, right? There, and, um, you know, Psalm 115 makes that clear. An idol is just a, a rock, a piece of wood. It's something created by man's hands. It's, Isaiah says it's, it's dumb. It, it can't hear. It can't respond. It can't do anything. He says, we understand that. Jesus said that all foods are, are clean. We, we know that from his earthly ministry. We, we know, as Psalm 24, verse 1 says, that the whole earth is the Lord and all that it contains. And so everybody, their response to the hymn is, everybody knows that there's nothing, there can't be anything inherently wrong with eating meat that's been offered at a pagan temple. And um, it's possible that, as he says in verse 1, we this quotation, we all have knowledge, was something that they were saying, just like in chapter 7, verse 1, where he said it's good, they were saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul is quoting them in the beginning of verse 1. One and so that was their um, that was their response to him. We, we everybody knows this, but notice notice how Paul takes this whole situation and begins by pulling down their pride. And he does this in four ways, four angles in which he pulls down their pride. He begins in verse one. He says, "We know that we all have knowledge." This knowledge, he says, that you claim to have, this knowledge you think that makes you so judicious and discerning, he says, there's nothing special about it. We all have that. (laughs) We all know that we all have knowledge. He says, I have it, you have it, all believers have it. And so what he does here is affirm this reality that their knowledge that they were clinging to Wasn't exclusive to them, but was really common to all believers. It wasn't anything special. John Chrysostom, who was a famous uh, fifth century preacher, said, They who possess something great and excellent are more elated when they alone have it. But if it be shown that they possess it in common with others, they no longer have so much of this feeling. Um, It's kind of like NFTs, right? It's like if you have a picture of a monkey right, and you paid money for that picture um, and thousands of other people have that same picture <laughs> that they paid money for, it's like, what have you really got? Nothing. It's kind of worthless. And, and, and that's, that's kind of the idea. Paul's saying this, what you have, this knowledge that you have, everybody has this knowledge if they're in Christ. And so Paul swings the axe at their towering pride by pointing out that their knowledge was common property. There's nothing unique about it. Second, he says, your knowledge, he points out, not only does he point out their knowledge was common property, he says, secondly, that their knowledge was woefully inadequate. And and he says, not only was it inadequate, but it actually was destructive because it lacked what was essential, and that is love. If you look at, again, verse 1, he says, knowledge makes arrogant, But love edifies. See, knowledge without love simply puffs up. Knowledge without love simply puffs up the one who possesses it. Conversely, love without knowledge leads to foolish zeal. So you got to have both. You got to have both. Romans 10, verse 2 talks about this, for Paul says, I testify about my brothers and sisters in Israel. He says that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So they have love, or at least devotion, and not knowledge, and so it leads to kind of foolish zeal. But we don't want to miss what Paul's saying here. Love and knowledge are not in competition with each other. So don't read verse 1 and think, well, it's one or the other. It's not that. They're not pitted against each other in some kind of fight-to-the-death cage match. Um, love and knowledge in a disciple of Christ, they work together hand in glove. Um, take love out of the equation and knowledge just puffs up, Paul says, the one who possesses it with selfish pride. Isn't that what we've been memorizing, right? In 1 Corinthians 13 and in verse 2, he says, if I have know all mysteries and have all knowledge, but do not have love, what does he say? I am nothing. I am nothing. See, they're running around, these, this knowledge group, saying, we know, we know, we know, we know this, we know that. And Paul says, that's the problem. That's the issue. That's all you do. All you care about is what you know. Your knowledge, he says, is puffing you up. And as it is inevitably does when it stands by itself, knowledge, it's sowing division. But love, love on the other hand, both draws together and leads to knowledge. Love, he says, edifies. This whole picture of edification, this, this term, building up, is such an important concept in Paul's writing, both in terms of how we, uh, how he excuse me, thought about his apostolic authority, he said, which God gave him not for tearing down but for building up, but also how important edification is in terms of how we as disciples relate to one another in the body of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Like It's one of the one another's that we would build each other up. The giftedness that God has given us, Paul points out later in chapter 14, he points out that our spiritual giftedness is not for ourselves, but is meant to build up the church. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 12, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, he says, seek To abound for the edification, the building up of the church. As one author said, while knowledge makes a man look big, it is only love that can make him grow to full stature. So, knowledge without love, he says, is woefully, woefully inadequate. There's a third thing that he points out here to pull down their pride. He indirectly but politely points out that our knowledge here on earth, at its very best, our knowledge is incomplete. Look at verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. He says even if you recognize that true knowledge is common property to all of God's people, and even if the knowledge you have is joined with that essential ingredient of love, Nevertheless, your knowledge is partial. Your knowledge is incomplete. If anyone thinks he has full, complete knowledge, he hasn't even begun to truly know. That's how you could paraphrase that. We're all fallen creatures. We're all finite in our understanding, and we should never pretend like we're anything but that. Scott Clark warns against getting caught up in what he calls the quest for illegitimate religious certainty. He says, quote, the quest to know what God knows the way he knows it. For those on this quest, he says, what matters more than finding truth or getting it right, what matters most of all is just being right. Those who launch out on what he calls the quirk, quest for illegitimate religious (laughs) certainty, Those who launch out on this quirk, he said, make no distinctions between essential and non-essential doctrines and practices since this quest renders them all equally important. This quest for illegitimate religious certainty is the pursuit to know God in ways he has not revealed himself to achieve um, a knowledge and moral certainty on questions where such certainty is neither possible nor desirable. Listen, we don't do, I said this earlier when we got into chapter 7, we don't do well with uncertainty. We want things to always be black and white, and for the most part, the scriptures make things very black and white. But there are things that are not, and we have to understand that when things are not clear, we cannot go beyond the scriptures. You know, if you look at the history of English Bible translation, it was in the, particularly in the 40s and 50s and 60s when there began to be a whole slew of new English Bible translations. What do you see in response? You see in response the King James only kind of mandate that that's the inspired Bible. And so these people go further than Scripture. And so they, again, try and provide, in that midst of uncertainty, or what's a good translation, what's a faithful translation, they just say, we're just going to say that this is the best translation, and everyone who uses it must use it. And you can think about that with any other um, kind of gray area issue. Paul's point is that there's no point in pluming out your feathers on what at the end of the day is partial knowledge. It's incomplete. As Paul wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. He says, uh, it's not about what you know. It's about having the right attitude and a humble heart. Romans 11 says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. In other words, God is unknowable. He cannot be known completely and perfectly. And and I want you to note the indefiniteness of this. He says, if anyone includes himself, he includes Peter, and, and he includes John, and he includes the other apostles, he includes the Corinthians, he's not exempting himself here. He says there's only one who has perfect and complete knowledge, and it's not you, and it's not me. We just don't have that. So these words by Paul are a mortal blow to those who are puffed up with knowledge. He says, "Knowledge is proud, that it has learned so much, but wisdom is humble that it knows no more." Notice fourthly, how Paul swings the axe with one kind of final blow to fall fell the tree of selfish pride. he does so in verse three. And this verse is a little bit of an enigma. You might expect Paul to say, if anyone loves God, he has knowledge, meaning kind of experiential knowledge. But Paul actually flips it around at the end and makes the believer the recipient of the action of the verb. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by him, by God, that is. And so here, Paul reminds us and we're, and we're humbled by the fact of Jesus' words in John 15 and verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Or 2 Timothy 2 verse 19, where Paul affirms that the Lord knows those who are his. Or as he writes in Galatians 4 verse 9, and affirms that true believers are those who have come to know God, but then he quickly qualifies that by saying, or rather, to be known by God. Or as we will memorize next week in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, Paul says, I know in part, but then in the future I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. See, the issue isn't what we know, but who knows you. We all have knowledge. And that knowledge might very well be paired with the necessary ingredient of love. And you may even affirm, as Paul does here, that your true knowledge is incomplete, that that you're not God, that you're not omniscient. But we can never forget that what incomplete knowledge we have at the end of the day, it only comes to us by the gracious gift of God the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this this points us back to chapter 4, right, in in verse 7, where Paul says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The obvious answer is that there's nothing to boast about. Everything we have, everything we do in this life that counts is a gracious gift from God to us. And so we, we, we don't get to boast about anything, John says we love because he first loved us. So there's no way that we can take credit for any of it. And so I just stop here to ask the question, do you love God? You might say, of course I do. Well, how can you be certain of that? How can you know for sure? Well, Paul tells us, he says, the one who loves God is the one who has been known by him. Which leads to a third question. How do you know if you've been known by God? That God's chosen you. Well, the only way you can be certain of that, and you can be certain of that, is that you've turned from your sin, your rebellion, and placed your trust in Christ, and Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins in eternal life. If you've placed your faith in Christ, not your good deeds, not your religious upbringing, not your church attendance or anything else, but if you've placed your faith in Christ, then he has set his gracious love upon you and you belong to him and you are known of God. And if you haven't done that, here is good news for you that you can do that right now. The Lord of heaven and earth, the scripture says, is abounding in loving kindness and salvation riches for all who will call upon him. Jeremiah 9 says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, not let the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. Our boast isn't in ourselves. Our trust is not in ourselves and our actions, but our trust is upon Christ in his finished work at the cross, in his resurrection from the grave that vindicated his holiness and righteousness. And so just in three simple verses, Paul fells the tree of all human pride. Your knowledge, my knowledge, is common property. It belongs to all who have the Spirit of God. There's nothing unique about it. Your knowledge and my knowledge is woefully inadequate if it lacks the essential ingredient of love. Your knowledge and my knowledge is at best incomplete on our best day. There are some things the Scriptures don't make explicitly clear, and so we cannot go further than the Word of God. And lastly, what true knowledge we do have, such as it is, is entirely the gift of God not of your own intuition or your own insight, but it is strictly by his grace. Why does Paul start this way? And this is how I want to end today. Why does Paul start this way? This whole issue of meat sacrifice to idols. I just want to zip this up a little bit and synthesize what Paul's been saying and kind of tee up what we're going to look at next Sunday. First, Even though Paul might agree with them in principle that an idol is nothing and that meat is just meat, he understands that they are using knowledge in the wrong way. They are using knowledge in the wrong way. So some might go so far as to say they're abusing their knowledge by weaponizing it against their fellow brothers and sisters in the church. And if that's what's going on, that is a serious problem. And so he begins by gently but clearly correcting their view of knowledge and pulls down their pride in the process. A second thing that we need to understand is Christian conduct is not based simply on knowledge. It rests on knowledge that loves our brothers and sisters. Knowledge that's preoccupied with nothing more than the accumulation of more data, biblical data, or knowledge that's consumed with protecting the sterile correctness of our theology at all costs only leads to pride and destroys. True knowledge consists in having sound doctrine, but also knowing how to rightly apply that sound doctrine so as to live in love toward all and build them up. Love edifies. You know, and I'm speaking about myself here. Once your theology is firmly in hand, it is particularly tempting to use it as a club on other people. I've done that. I've made that mistake. And Paul is warning against that here. That's what was happening in Corinth. It doesn't mean that knowledge isn't important or that it isn't even necessary, because it absolutely is. You cannot have uh, love without knowledge. It's just sentimentalism or, or foolish zeal. But we must have them together. Knowledge alone is not enough and it cannot serve as the foundation upon which we go about our Christian conduct. Love is the foundation upon which all Christian conduct must be grounded. Our freedom our liberty, our authority, which is what this term means here, isn't um, a rugged individualist freedom to do whatever we want whenever we want. Which is that that is a that is a cultural construct that we live in in the culture that we live in. The freedom is all about you choosing to do whatever you want. No, the freedom that the scripture speaks about is not a freedom to do whatever you want, wherever you want, but a freedom from sin's tyranny over your heart and over your life. And such as allows you, finally, for once in your life, in my life, to be able to give our lives away for the benefit of other people. Like Paul says, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So, the freedom we have is freedom not to sin and to love and serve others and to give our lives away for others. So, Paul's argument in chapter 8, as we're going to see next Sunday, is largely an ethical one. Knowledge must always lead to love. And then he applies it in verses 7 to 13. Otherwise, Paul says it has no eternal value. Without love, I am nothing without love, though I may have all knowledge and know all mysteries and have all faith so as to remove mountains, Paul says, it profits me nothing. And so with that, we'll look next Sunday at our church's, the church's common confession and as he applies this truth in verses 7 to 13, the church's mutual care. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that this... um, Word to us helps us navigate not even the thing not just the things that we know are true and right, black and white from scripture, which those things are many, but it also guides and directs us to navigate the uncertainties, the gray areas, the things that where um, your scriptures do not give us direction one way or another. There are principles there to help us, and the most important principle as we think about those things is that. Our Christian conduct must always be grounded in love and the edification of those around us. We pray that we would take that to heart because we live, we we are swimming against the tide, Lord, of a culture that says, you know, I'm free and I'm free to do all that I would want in any situation. But the scripture calls us to a different standard. We pray that we would take these things to heart, Lord, that our church would be known for its love, that Jesus says that, By your love, the world will know that you are my disciples. So, Lord, again, we cannot do that in our own capacity or strength. Draw us to you. We thank you for this word in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio or information about Cascades Bible Church. Visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.